Nation. Providing you with the practical tools and expert knowledge to optimize your strength, health and mindset inside and out. With your host, Steve Katarzy. So apologies up front, guys, but this is going to be another one of those conversations which you kind of don't want to have. It's like, I, I know I need to hear it. There's going to be some truths that are going to be hard to grasp, hard to handle, hard to consume, but I probably should hear it. Why is this conversation going to be one of those? Well, I'm going to be challenging your worldview and good nutrition just a little bit yet again. And today we're going to be speaking with Elliot Overton about the subject of oxalates. Now, oxalates, you're thinking, what are they? You wouldn't have heard of them, or unlikely would you have heard of them, because they're not spoken about. Not in nutritional guidance, not through nutritionists. It's definitely not in the eyes and ears of the general public, not at all. More importantly, we've been led to believe that a strong plant-based diet is the way forward for optimal nutrition and that there's these superfoods which are just fantastically good for us and we should be buying them as much as we can, consuming them all year round. The problem is many of these superfoods, these great plant-based foods, are riddled with oxalates. Oxalate is a mild metabolic toxin found in most plants to varying degrees and unlike other phytonutrients or molecules like gluten lectins oxalates cannot be broken down by the body or detoxified by the liver it's either eliminated or if the body's overwhelmed it is accumulated chronically now oxalates are found in high volume in many of these so-called superfoods today such as spinach cacao beetroot sweet potatoes, almonds, the list goes on. And whilst these foods and many others have a great reputation for their health benefits, it turns out we've been omitting one major downside to copious all-round consumption, and that is their oxalate values. These are absolutely chock-a-block. So in this in-depth two-parter with Elliot, we are going to get into why you need to care about this insidious yet anonymous bad actor in our healthy diets. Elliot's going to lay down the science, he's going to help you logically understand what oxalates are, where you find them, why they're an issue, and the reason to be concerned about oxalate poisoning, as well as the ways in which to manage oxalate dumping. Elliot potentially provides people with a solution, or at least an understanding behind why some people suffer with a random collection of symptoms that ebb and flow and change and yet they're not clinically diagnosed with any given condition. It provides a new way to look at food, a new way to look at issues with our body and new things you can try for yourself with both diet and health management. Look guys, I love this conversation for a few reasons. Firstly, Elliot's a great guy really, really good at getting his point across and explaining the science, but also making it practical and real. So that was great. Secondly, I, I'm a bit of a geek, of course, and I love all this nutritional deep dive. And we really do get an opportunity to fully understand some mechanisms within our body, which is awesome. 
But thirdly, and probably most importantly, this is so relevant to me. I was on a very high oxalate diet unknowingly for a couple of years. Most recently, I've transitioned to a low oxalate diet. And whilst I feel better for it, some of the symptoms that I was struggling with that I couldn't pin on to anything just assumed as part of aging and just me are disappearing or changing or morphing, which is fantastic. But I'm also experiencing what I can only assume is oxalate dumping. This process of trying to eliminate accumulated toxin and it takes time and it is funky and it's confusing and it can be pretty horrible to go through. So it was great to have some counsel and some discussion so I can understand what's going on in my body or at least have another answer or another potential answer as opposed to just assuming I had food poisoning or cold or it's coincidence or it's something else. Now, I do hope this conversation lands, that it does make some sense. And you can see some logic in at least exploring this idea of high oxalate diets and the impact it can have on our health. If you check through the show notes, you'll see some useful links that we reference throughout the discussion. They're going to really help in your further exploration of oxalates. And then if you have any questions or you want to challenge anything that's been said, get through to me and Elliot on the Adaptation Facebook page. I'll make sure he's involved in the conversation. So just buckle up, guys, and listen to the fantastic, highly informative discussion about something fringe but important with Elliot. Over to Adaptation. So today, guys, we are talking all things oxalates. You may be asking, what the hell are oxalates and why should I care? Something new, something more prob- problematic to enter into my life, something else I need to remove. Well, through this discussion, I'm hoping we can answer these questions and more. And the short answer is, based on my own research and understanding, is it sounds like you probably should care about oxalates. So to help with this education on this specialist and niche subject within nutritional science, we have a nutritionist and functional medical practitioner, Elliot Overton, joining us today. And he's a Brit, which is an absolute bonus. So it's great it's a great pleasure and it's a privilege to have you on the show, Elliot. Thank you so much for finding the time to chat with us today. Yeah, it's a pleasure to be on, Steve. And thanks for having me on the show. Well, yeah, it's, it, this subject in particular is quite personal to me. And we'll get into the reasons why I think it is personal later. Um, but before maybe we get into class and we start talking all things oxalates and give everyone, everyone a bit of a rundown, uh, maybe we can start with you. Elliot, um, maybe you can give us a bit of a sense of your vocation, of your reasons for zeroing in on oxalates in particular, and maybe if there's any kind of personal aspects of your nutritional journey that are relevant to this discussion. So wherever you want to start, Elliot, let's just give give us a feel for who is Elliot Overton. Yeah, great. Um, so, yeah, I, as as you said already, I'm a nutritionist. Um, I became interested in nutrition. Um, actually I've always been relatively interested in kind of alternative healing modalities, you know, um, when I was younger reading stories about people curing their cancer and all these different kinds of weird and wonderful things, I was always interested in that side, the non-conventional side of alternative health, you might say. And, um, 
it was actually after traveling through India and uh, picking up a couple of tummy bugs, you might say, deli belly, which lasted for a very long time. I made myself quite ill and um, I was vegetarian at that point as well. Um, and I'd actually been vegetarian from quite a young age. And um, yeah, so I got back to the UK and I went to the GP and, and I wasn't satisfied with the answers that I got with regard to how um, how to improve my 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 health, how I could kind of resolve my gut issues and, and things. And so I did a little bit of research and it inevitably led to nutrition. It led to kind of different ways to, you know, probiotics and different supplements and things and different diets. I tried a couple of diets and that eventually led me on to this, what it's called like the ketogenic diet, um, the ancestral health or paleolithic kind of way of looking at things, stumbled across Western A. Price and it kind of struck a note, you know, it made sense. And so um, from that point onwards, I... I started eating meat and I started changing my diet and actually discovered that through reading all of these kinds of different books and research papers, I found out that I really was interested in nutrition. You know, I, I liked it as a science. I thought actually I could, I could do that as a, as a job kind of thing. Um, and so I was, I chose to go the unconventional route, you might say. Uh, I didn't study at university. I went the alternate route and I went through an institution called the College of Naturopathic Medicine in the UK. Mm -hmm. And um, <clears throat> essentially, they tried to take a more naturopathic perspective, which kind of made sense to me. I, I thought, you know, this th this is the way forward. But I was a little bit, um, how can I say, I was a bit disappointed actually in the perspective that was given, um, the way that they are training nutritional therapists is, is very much oriented towards a, a plant-based model. This idea that the more plants that you eat, um, the, the, the wider variety or the more colorful fruits and vegetables on your plate, the healthier you will be. And my experience kind of was completely the opposite to that. So, yeah, I, I I made it through my time there, and um, it was it was when I started really working with people um, and trying out different diets and things in clinical practice, starting to see that plants tended to have lots of negative effects in many different ways on like a wide variety of people. So. Anyone who knows anything about kind of alternative nutrition or alternative health, we're aware that certain plants, or it's quite a you know a popular idea now, fairly well established, is that certain plants can cause health problems. So many even conventional dietitians know that gluten you can have non-celiac gluten sensitivity, and many people are reacting to these different kinds of plant compounds and having a, a a negative effect. You have gluten and you have gliadin and then you have all kinds of things like lectins found in beans and legumes and stuff. And this, you know, this, this can be really quite damaging for people. It's been implicated in autoimmunity and many different uh, chronic health conditions. So this element that, or this idea that plants can be 
um, potentially unhealthy for certain individuals, or they can contribute towards chronic illness. This this is known, okay? But when we talk about oxalates, this isn't very well known. So it's like there's 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 a wide acceptance that there's potentially some problematic elements in certain foods, but actually there's this whole this whole area of oxalates. No one really talks about. I mean, there's a couple of people that who who have spoken about this for years, and we, I'm sure we'll talk about them later later on. Um, but essentially, it turns out that plants. Um, I mean, you had Paul Saladino on the show recently, right? So yeah. uh, I'm sure your listeners are familiar with this idea: is that plants essentially want to survive, and they essentially want to reproduce. They want to pass on their genes. And so they will find many different ways to protect themselves. And so this idea that plant toxins can be toxic for human beings, it makes a lot of sense. And as I said, we, we, we kind of can accept that with certain types of plants. But in terms of oxalates, there's not many people who really know about this. And I will be honest that this is what um, really uh, inspired me to to do quite a lot of research into this was because I was already familiar with many of these other problematic components in food, but I'd never really, I'd never been taught about oxalates. You know, in, in nutrition school, we never learn anything about oxalates. And, and when I started to look at some of the foods um, that contain very high levels of oxalate, I was very much flabbergasted because actually Many of those, in fact, most of the so-called superfoods that we are told that we should be eating copious amounts of on a daily basis, these are amongst the highest in oxalates. And so uh, I think that the topic is something that people should really know about. They should learn more about. Um, might be new to them, but quite frankly, um, it, it could definitely be useful for people to be able to become educated and actually tell others about this because it could save someone's life. Um, and, and when we're talking about plant toxins, when we're looking at how these plants protect themselves, um, we know that, for, for instance, if someone has gluten sensitivity, non-celiac gluten sensitivity, then generally if they remove gluten from their diet, then things will get better. Yeah, and it's the same kind of thing for lectins or salicylates or histamines or whatever kind of plant component that someone is sensitive to, then when they remove that from the diet, they actually notice benefits. And this is where oxalate is different. So oxalate is, <laughs> it, I, I, I should probably explain exactly what oxalate is. So oxalate is, is a small molecule, okay? Um, it as I said, it's it's produced in the, the plant kingdom, and essentially, um, it's a, a, it's a method that plants use to protect themselves against uh, herbivores, against pests, against animals. Uh, stops things from wanting to eat them, basically. Um, and to some extent, human beings also produce it in small amounts in the liver as part of like normal human biochemistry. That's in very small amounts. Anyway, so oxalate, um, the chemical, it can, it can exist in several different states. So you have free oxalate or oxalic acid. Um, and oxalate can, when it's, when it's in its free form, basically it's missing two electrons. So it 
when it comes into contact with a positively charged cation, so um, when it comes into contact with, say, calcium, then what will happen is it, is it will um, it will bind very tightly with it. It will bind with certain minerals. And so for this reason, it's actually been used as a, a, a metal chelator or a mineral chelator. So oxalate can bind with minerals. And when it binds with minerals, it forms oxalate salts. So you can have something like calcium oxalate. You can have potassium oxalate. You have two main types of salts that it forms. It forms the soluble salts and it also forms the insoluble salts. Okay. And so plants can use oxalate. It's, it's theorized anyway that plants have been able to use oxalate to essentially sequester minerals. So it it's potentially one of the ways that plants um, can hold on to calcium, for instance. And so when we eat these plants, what happens is, is these oxalate crystals, whether it be in the case of you might have soluble oxalate in a plant, you could have insoluble oxalate, you could have free oxalate. And what happens is when we consume these foods, um, essentially the oxalate or the oxalate salt um, Basically, when we're digesting a, a food, we are releasing these into the digestive tract. It could be in the mouth. It could be down the esophagus. It could be in the stomach or in the intestine. What's happening is, is that essentially this, this oxalate is, is um, it's highly toxic. Okay. That's just a way of putting it. It is extremely toxic and it can cause um, both mechanical and chemical damage. Okay, so so a way to kind of visualize this, as as we've been saying, is 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 it is it sorry, it is a way for plants to protect themselves against um predators or against herbivores. And if you look at the oxalate under um a microscope, then what you see is that it actually can exist in multiple different kind of shapes and sizes and different structures. So it can form these things called raphides, which are like long needles. They're really sharp. It can also form things like um, like triangular or rectangular kind of uh, crystal formations. Um, and, and these look, I mean, if you, they look a bit like quartz crystals, if you look at a picture of them, okay? And if you think every time that you're eating a certain type of plant which is employed this defense mechanism when you're eating this you're liberating these crystals or these shy, sharp kind of spiky um structures what what's happening is 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 they can actually become lodged in your tissue okay so so the mechanical element to this is that because of their physical characteristics because of their physical qualities um they can essentially lodge into say the gi tract in let's say lodge into the stomach lining or in the intestine and they can actually cause uh, they can like puncture holes into your mucous membranes okay they pump it, puncture holes into the soft tissues um and they can be extremely irritant so there are some people who react like very strongly when they eat kiwi kiwi fruits for instance kiwi fruit is very high in oxalate and some people actually say that they can feel it they can feel the shards in their mouth it almost feels like it's 
burning or that it's kind of stinging their mouths. Um, and I think that this is potentially related to the oxalate content. Um, and yeah, essentially it's, it's, it's a highly abrasive kind of chemical or a molecule and, and it can cause uh, a great deal of damage and stress to any kind of tissue that it's coming into contact with. And so reading about this, it's kind of like the stuff out of nightmares <laughs> or um, the stuff of, of a horror film. So just, I started just, reading about just this. Just based on what you've said, just this idea of like consuming sharp crystal-like structures. I mean, that doesn't paint it in a fantastic light. But at the same time, people may easily draw a conclusion that we have other crystal-like structures that we have on our food, such as salt or sugar or uh, I'm sure other other things can yeah, look salt-like when we eat them. But fundamentally, at a molecular level, we're, we're talking about different things here, right? Yeah, indeed. So, for instance, you have what appears to be a shard of sugar <laughs> or like a shard of salt that is going to dissolve uh, into its constituent parts when it enters the body. Um, if you are consuming an oxalate crystal, then that is not going to decompose. Your, your body's not... Well, to say that, that's not a blanket statement because there are certain um, elements or certain um, kind of, you can think of them as protective mechanisms that the body can employ to deal with this. But essentially, um, no, it's, it's a very different thing. It's that these are inherently toxic. In, I mean, in fact, if you want to, one of the... Um, researchers who has really done a lot of work into oxalate and really brought it into the public eye uh, named Sally Norton and she mm -hmm. she wrote a very good paper um, and it was called um, <clears throat> lost seasonality and the overconsumption of plants potential risks with oxalate overconsumption I think it was and um, and so she lays out some of the history and it's actually very interesting is that I mean, oxalic acid or oxalate has been known as a metabolic toxin for hundreds of years. Okay, I think that um, it was it was originally used. I think in the first um, study of toxicology, it was actually used as like the prototypical poison that they were using. Um, and so it's been very well known in the past that if people were to overconsume rhubarb in rhubarb season, um, if they were over, to overconsume over certain foods like sorrel, um, then this would potentially be fatal. Uh, you know, over the past 200 years or so, there have been <clears throat> multiple cases where people have, I mean, there was, there've been women who've died from making sorrel soup, okay, putting too much sorrel. Sorrel contains very, very high levels of this plant toxin, this metabolic poison. Um, and so, it can very much uh, or it does pose a major threat to human physiology. We can only deal with small amounts um, at any one given time. So to give you kind of a, 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 an estimate or, or a basic overview, there are many different plants which contain this poison. Um, but the level really differs. So you can have some plants which are really low in oxalate actually like iceberg lettuce for instance iceberg lettuce is extraordinarily safe because if you look at its content of oxalate it's you know it's practically zero whereas if we can pair that to another 
leafy green that you would have in your salad in conjunction with iceberg lettuce, you would have spinach. Now, spinach is among the highest of all foods in its oxalate content. Spinach is just absolutely so remarkably high. So in half a cup of cooked spinach, you might be getting, say, 500 milligrams. Okay, and just to give you kind of some perspective, the the recommended amount um, that that is kind of recommended to avoid kidney issues is 150 to 200 milligrams per day. Okay, that's that's like the average. And I would say that that's probably too high anyway. But you're looking at, you know, 150 milligrams per day spread out throughout the day. Whereas in half a cup of spinach, you could potentially be getting 500 milligrams. Okay, so so there are some foods which just contain just such high levels of, of, of this stuff. And it turns out that many of these foods are supposedly super, super healthy foods. And they're foods which people are over consuming nowadays. But we can talk about that in a little while. Um, just to go back to the kind of historical context, it has been well known. It has been well known that this oxalic acid, when it's overconsumed uh, in, a, in a kind of short space of time, that it can actually be fatal. It can cause someone to go in a, into a metabolic crisis and they actually, you know, they, they die shortly afterwards. So there are many cases of people who've been oxalate poisoned. Um, and not coming from plants. I mean, if you have uh, certain man-made chemicals like polyethylene glycol, I mean, there have been acute acute um, cases of poisoning with polyethylene glycol. And the reason for that is because what happens is, is it is when you consume that, it, it turns into oxalate into the in, in, in the body. And the reason for death is oxalate related. Um, and so, so these are generally i can appreciate for people it it might be quite difficult to comprehend this because it really goes against you know 99% of what we are taught about nutrition and even someone who doesn't necessarily train in nutrition like i did um the idea that we're fed especially in the past couple of decades um this idea of being healthy and what foods we need to eat to be healthy, we've all been very much brainwashed in many ways. Um, and so, I mean, just to key, yeah. just to key off that, Elliot, um, I think we'll have an opportunity at some point for me to share my kind of transitionary story. But just to give you a sense of the foods that I once was eating, and I'm someone who, had, you know, I prided myself on being informed. Um, who, you know, was living to thrive, like really wanted to do everything in support of, you know, optimal nutrition and therefore me being my best. You know, only six months ago, I would have had a typical day of having um, 500 mil of almond milk, um, almond butter, beetroot, turmeric, pepper, and this is daily, pepper, frozen spinach, probably 100 grams of that, and that's frozen, not the dry stuff, so that's even more dense dark chocolate, cacao power, powder, cacao protein shakes, sweet potatoes by the bucket load, um, plus other other foods, of course. But I just mentioned a couple of foods there which are quite high in oxalates. I didn't look at any of those foods from almonds to turmeric to beetroot to spinach to cacao. I would never have looked at those and said, hey, there's, en there's, en there's nothing benign or 
or sinister about these foods. They're all touted as including beetroot and stuff like that as superfoods, right? And you can Google it and find tons of positive reasons from vitamins, minerals, hormetic effects, you know, positive stresses on our body that create, you know, an antioxidant-like response. You, you can you can get very educated very quickly on why those foods I was choosing were profoundly good for my health. Yet, without trying to steal your thunder, that, all of those I just said are quite high in oxalates. How have we got this so wrong if we have got it wrong how could we be missing a trick here because i've gone from not having just a bit of these i went to having lots of these every single day lots of to the point i was probably exceeding the recommended value by at least seven times per day <laughs> i'm really sorry to hear that steve i think i think it's it's a similar case for many other people it was it was me at one point as well you know um i think most people who take an interest in nutrition tend to go overboard and i think this is really where the danger comes in is because <clears throat> what we what we tend to do is we see that something is healthy or we told that something is healthy and so we think that More okay yeah the more the better and we go overboard on that and this is really what we're seeing in, in today's kind of nutrition fields so to speak and so um a lot of the the foods that you just mentioned <laughs> i mean it's practically the guidebook on high oxalate <laughs> foods oh, <right> no. <laughs> it is um but but as you said that they're the really common ones so uh, it's just worth mentioning here that there is some degree of variability as well in terms of um, the type of or the 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 family of the the vegetable, let's say, or the fruit. Is that you can have kale, which is it's not too high, but it is you know it's moderately high. But then you can have other types of kale, such as purple kale, which are quite low. Okay, likewise, you can have um, certain oranges which are low but then you have like a tangerine which is relatively high from what i can remember so it's it kind of differs and it also differs to some extent based on the soil content if i remember correctly because the amount of oxalate that the plant needs to sequester the calcium is potentially going to depend on the calcium content of the soil what I'm trying to say is that it's not always easy to determine the oxalate content of a food. And what I will say as well, before we kind of go into this, is that the oxalate research has been very scatty, let's say. So the measurement of different foods can differ based on the technique that they use. It can differ based on the type of food. Again, as I've said, you know, where it's grown all, there's lots of different factors in terms of the actual research um, that govern how someone is going to measure the amount of oxalate in a food. And so um, one of the oxalate researchers, the name is Susan Owens, she has rightly criticized many of these so-called um, lists online, which which basically give out information on high and low oxalate foods. But it turns out that as they've as the the scientists in the field have actually developed better um tools of measuring what they previously thought was low may actually be high and so there's lots of different lists online online and some of them are quite conflict conflicting and so it can be um 
relatively confusing for someone who's trying to find out what oxalate, what foods contain high oxalates. Um, but yeah, as you were saying, the types of foods that you were eating, uh, so the 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 really high foods are the spinach. You've got many of the berries like blackberries, um, certain types of blueberries. There are um, you've got kiwi fruit. You've got um, sweet potato. You've got most nuts. Um, I think macadamia are the lowest, whereas almonds are among the highest. Highest you've got peanuts. Many of the grains are very high in oxalate. And unfortunately as well, it's many of the gluten-free grains. So when people go on paleolithic diets, what they actually find is, or what they tend to do, and I know that I did this myself, I suspect that you may have done this as well, is that when you give up gluten, you think that it's okay to replace it with all of these weird and wonderful flowers like cassava flour or almond flour or buckwheat and Lots of the, those those apparently safe starches, those safe grains, um, they're actually just exponentially higher in oxalate than wheat is. Okay, so um, again, chocolate, dark chocolate. So it's like what we do is we see that chocolate may contain certain antioxidants. It's like researchers will put chocolate in a petri dish and then measure the the amount of polyphenols and the measure measure the amount of antioxidants or whatever they do and then we think that okay because because this one study has shown a, a, a slight increase in antioxidant activity from a certain polyphenol in 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 cacao we think it's okay to eat two bars of 99% dark chocolate every day mm. and it's like we take it to the extreme and Chocolate, dark chocolate is just absolutely, um, it's among the highest, really. It, it is really, really very high. And it's quite dangerous in our modern world now, or kind of in the West at least, because particularly among the paleo community or among um, even the GAPS diet, children who are put on the GAPS diet, they are given um, daily amounts of almond flour, they're, um, many of the vegans, they think it's healthy to, to, to actually drink spinach smoothies. Um, they think it's healthy to, you know, add in all of these kind of tropical spices to their, to their daily meals. It's like this, this is another example of how we take things out of context. We look at Ayurveda, traditional Ayurvedic medicine, or the traditional Indian cuisine, and we see that, okay, in their dishes, they use a bit of turmeric right? They use some turmeric, they use some cinnamon. But if you actually go over to India <clears throat> and you look at how much they use, in terms of how much they were consuming per dish, it's not actually that much, right? It's it's really not that much. I haven't said, but turmeric and cinnamon are among the highest spices in oxalate as well. Mm -hmm. But then in the West, what we will do is we'll, th we'll see some, some research paper saying turmeric is anti-cancer or cinnamon is great for diabetes, and so we put four tablespoons in our smoothie, right? And, and I was, you know, that that's me. It is absolutely me. I went from, you know, not heard, hearing about turmeric before to going, oh, that sounds good. I read up all these. I wasn't reading research papers, right? I'm getting the the media. I'm getting the the dumbed down versions. This is early in my journey. Realize this stuff is supposed to be good for you. Got a massive lot from Costco, huge tub, <laughs> um, and it would it would feed it would, it would feature as part of my daily smoothie. Now I wasn't doing spinach um, in my smoothies; that 
that was rank. <laughs> but I was adding cacao. I was adding almond um, butter sometimes to almond milk, as well as turmeric and black pepper. Because apparently you've got to put turmeric with black pepper because black pepper inhibits part of the the to toxic breakdown or the toxicity breakdown of curcumin. So you need the black yeah. pepper to allow that to do its kind of um, uh, hormetic effect, the kind of stressing effect on our body. So, yeah, I was doing all of that, you know, and I thought I was re relatively educated. Um, but going, going back to this, so let's just make sure that we really underline the point on oxalate because you've spoken about the mechanical damage. Um, but there are many foods that have phytonutrients, and some of us would be aware that there are foods that, you know, have this kind of, positive stress response to our body it creates a little bit of internal stress it's called hormesis we respond uh with glutathione we create our own free you know our own antioxidant response to something that is pro-oxidant it therefore has some benefit the problem is we're looking at in isolation and we're not looking at any kind of downstream or a collateral damage that food stuff could be causing but if you then look at oxalate, and you've described it as a toxin, you know, I've got a liver, I've got a kidney, I've got a process, a well-oiled machine of dealing with toxins in my body. Are we not detoxifying oxalate as it's been ingested? Right, so <clears throat> that's a really good question. And, and coming back to the example that you just gave, there are certain components of plants which can have potentially beneficial effects on the human body. Like no one discounts that. So you have this hormetic effect, you have these phytonutrients, salicylates, phenols, polyphenols. These things can be toxic in high doses, but in low doses, they can have an effect on the body which causes the body to launch an adaptive response which mm -hmm. actually increases or improves function, all right? This is entirely different to oxalate. Oxalate does not have um, that effect on the human body. So there are no beneficial or no known. And I will I'll be honest that there may be something come out in the future. But so far, um, as per my current understanding, there is no known metabolic benefit or potential benefit of oxalate. In fact, oxalate is basically a toxin that you need to get into your body and get it out of your body. Okay. Now, when we ingest it, so as I said before, like we were talking about the different kinds of oxalate, all right? So let's say that you have a big salad with some spinach. Okay. What's going to happen is you break down the, the plant matter with your teeth, you swallow it, you will have the liberation of some of the some of the free oxalate into your mouth and probably going through the mucous membranes there. Okay, but then what will happen is it will go down into the stomach, churn with all of your other food, and then it will get to the intestine. Now into the intestine, oh sorry, before we get to the intestine, then likely is going to be some adhering to the esophagus or absorbing through the esophagus and likewise through the stomach. Okay. So that's you're getting a little bit of a dose dose of oxalate, not necessarily a problem because we have adapted to deal with a very small amount at, at one at one time. Okay, so what's going to happen is it gets to the intestine. Okay, and there's several factors which are going to influence how the body is going to process oxalate or how much oxalate the body is going to absorb at one time. Okay, so some of those factors include 
gut integrity. So for instance, let's hypothetically say that someone has a robust gut. They've got good gut health. They don't have um, intestinal permeability. There's there's no issues going on with that. They don't have a dysbiosis per se. They've got a healthy gut bacteria. I don't know if there's anyone like that in the Western world at the moment, (laughs) but let's say hypothetically. So when it gets to the intestine, the calcium that has been liberated from, let's say that you had spinach. Um, Let's say you had that spinach with some feta cheese. So the calcium, which is from from the feta cheese, is going to bind with some of the free oxalate. Or you may have um, some other form of calcium, which is in the gut, and this is considered to be protective. Because what is happening is calcium is binding up with this oxalate, and it's causing an, it's, it's becoming an insoluble. So when it's insoluble, that means it's not going to be absorbed. All right, so insoluble oxalate will be carried out through the feces and into the toilet. That's not necessarily an issue per se. Now, there is going to be some level of soluble oxalate and free oxalate, and the soluble and free oxalate, that is going to be absorbed into the bloodstream. Okay, when it gets to the bloodstream, travel to the liver. When it gets to the liver, the liver needs to process it. So if there is a tolerable amount, let's say that you have a small amount like 10 or 15 milligrams, um, which is realistic, I think. Let's say you have 10 or 15 milligrams in a meal. Your liver can quite, you know, process that really quite well. Okay, it's going to kind of... um you may get some residual kind of mechanical damage. You may get some residual um, biochemical stress, let's say. Um, But after it's been processed through the liver, it will be sent to the kidneys and you will urinate it out through the kidneys. That is all being well. Okay, that's the ideal scenario. Just to be clear, that that there's not a detoxification process occurring. It's not being metabolized to an inert substance. It's in its raw form being eliminated versus broken down into something else? Uh, Yeah, for the most part, um, it's not something that we have the ability to break down metabolically speaking through enzyme pathways or anything like that. Like you look at the phytochemicals and they are very much biochemically active. Oxalate is not biochemically active in in that sense. In fact, oxalate is, is actually a biochemical end product um, and so that end product is ex- is excreted in the same way that it came in Got it. as as oxalate. It, it, now, saying that, just to kind of for the sake of detail, um, it can change in its form. So it can come in as potassium oxalate and actually crystallizes calcium oxalate in the end. Okay, so that is possible. But with regard to the oxalate part of it, that doesn't change. Okay, so now if we look at our modern world, okay, or we look at, say, the context of a a human being living in the Western world in the 21st century. So there are several factors which are going to predispose one towards absorbing more oxalate. Now, first of all, one of those is a high oxalate diet. Again, we've been speaking about this up until now. So if you are having, you have to understand that there is, there's many theories in in this kind of field of research. One of those um, 
is based on the idea that actually replenishing certain types of gut microbes can be very protective. Now, the reason for that is, is that we do have certain gut bacteria which have the capacity to degrade oxalate for us. Okay, and I think that this is one of the um, one of the protective factors against something like absorbing loads of these metabolic poisons. There are certain bacteria which, I mean, there's one specific kind of bacteria which I think has the highest capacity to degrade oxalate. And this is called oxalobacter formagenes, I think it is. And essentially what, what happens is these reside in the gut and they break down oxalate, they convert it into kind of, um, they bind it up and they convert it into inactive metabolites. And then, um, and then they are... Um, passed out through the feces and that renders it safe. Problem is, is that many people who have had chronic antibiotic use, we come into contact with pesticides, chemicals, all of these kinds of antimicrobial factors in our modern lives that actually the con composition of our gut bacteria has, has changed drastically, I think, and that there's, uh, you know, a constant onslaught against many of the microbes that do house our gut. And one of the problems is, is that there are many commonly used antibiotics, which have been shown quite successfully to selectively kill certain types of microbes, which funnily enough are the ones which degrade oxalate. Um, and so there's many cases of people developing oxalate issues after um, they have been on, say, a chronic round of antibiotics. And so what is going to happen is, is that when people kill off certain microbes, this is theorized to essentially allow more oxalate to remain unkind of bound up, unmetabolized. And so there's more free to be absorbed into the gut. Likewise, if someone has a leaky gut, or let's say that they have a problem, problem emulsifying and digesting fats. So if there's any problem with the liver, if there's any problem with the gallbladder, bioflow, if they have some other underlying condition, and I think that many people do generally have a leaky gut. I see in test results all of the time. Um, it's quite easy to develop one in, you know, in our toxic environment these days. But if someone's got a leaky gut, um, simply the elevated permeability is going to facilitate the entry of more oxalate into the bloodstream. Okay, there are factors um, I mean, there's people who've had gastric bypass, anyone who's had any kind of surgery. Um, there are certain types of medications which basically stop us from emulsifying fats very well. And what this does is it can render less calcium in the gut. And so actually it causes more free oxalate in the gut to be absorbed. And so there's lots of factors. Um, but on the in the context of gut bacteria as well, is it's interesting because we were I, I was just talking about certain gut microbes which can degrade oxalate. Well, it's been shown that when you feed oxalobacter, when you feed it too much oxalate, when you feed it like a very high amount, that it actually inhibits it. So this bacteria needs a certain level to grow, but actually when it's given too much, it becomes inhibited and it actually dies. So we see that a very high oxalate diet, such as um, someone who's having any type of green smoothies, someone who's having like a bar of dark chocolate every day, if they're having all of these different kinds of foods, then actually they're going to be a much greater risk to absorb a lot of oxalate.
Now, what happens when someone does absorb oxalate? I think this is really one of the key factors which which actually made me uh, want to look into this initially was oxalate is 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 extremely insidious, you know? It can go undetected. And I personally think out of all of the different plant chemicals which can cause harm to the human body, I think that oxalate is the most dangerous. And there's a reason for this, is is because oxalate can become accumulated in the human body. And this is really the key point to drive home, is that if someone has an issue with excess absorption of oxalate, then what the body tends to do is actually to store it. It can store it in many different places. And you see, we we are going to process a certain amount through the liver and, and, and a certain amount is going to go out through the kidneys. But there is is a real big problem there because the kidneys can only deal with so much. You see, oxalate is really toxic to, to many different cells, but particularly the kidney. The kidney is very susceptible to oxidative stress from any source, really. Um, and when it comes into contact with oxalate in an inflammatory environment, um, the most well-characterized kind of condition associated with elevated oxalates is kidney stones. So 80% of kidney stones are made up of calcium oxalate crystals. And what this is, is, is when there is elevated levels of oxalate in the blood, they are being filtered through the kidneys. And actually, the kidneys can only deal with so much at any one given time. And if there are certain types of immune cells present, if there is kind of like an inflammatory process going on underneath the surface, then you can actually develop calcium oxalate crystals, these crystals. So lots of like uh, insoluble calcium oxalate um, ions or what they're doing is they're forming like this this ultra structure, this crystalline structure, and this is actually becoming deposited in the kidney. Um, But the problem is, is that although most of the research has been done on kidney stones in the context of oxalate, oxalate toxicity, it turns out that the kidney is simply is is merely one organ. In fact, oxalate crystals can, they appear to be able to deposit in practically any kind of tissue. So the most well kind of um, characterizes the kidneys, but they can also, they seem to tend to lodge in the um, lower down in the urinary tract. So in the bladder, there is a condition called vulvodynia, which is characterized by severe pain at the opening of the vagina for a a woman. And um, it, if you speak to any of these these women, and I've got several clients who have this condition at the moment, um, they literally ex- explain it or describe it as though it feels like shards of glass, like stabbing into their vagina. Um, and that has, um, that is, that is being characterized as, as oxalate crystals. Likewise, um, there was one study, which I sh- I think it showed, um, in people with who are who are euthyroid, so they are not diagnosed with any kind of thyroid condition. I think it showed that the, like the large majority of those people had calcium oxalate stones deposited in the thyroid gland. The 
Calcium oxalate can be deposited in the aorta. It can go all throughout the gut. It can be deposited in the joints, in the muscles, in this, the soft connective tissue. It can be deposited in the eyes, in the teeth, in the bones, in the, um, in the ovaries, I think, in the testes. They can be deposited in breast tissue, in brain tissue, in the ears. Um, I mean, anywhere that you can think of, oxalate can actually hide. And it tends to actually go to places where there is either ongoing inflammation or where there has been a past injury. So it's almost like where there's a weakness in your body system, so to speak. Um, oxalate can, can be attracted to that area. And what happens when someone gets oxalate deposition in some of their tissue or in one of their organs or in wherever it is, it wreaks mechanical and biochemical havoc. So like we were talking about the structure of it beforehand and just due to its, its, its physical qualities, like it is capable of shredding tissue. Like if you imagine you have oxalate, there is a condition called oxalate related arthropathy. Okay. And it's not very well characterized, but actually, um, what can happen is, is, is basically there, there are people who have this high level of oxalate and what's happening is, is it's deposited in their joints, let's say um, asymmetrically or symmetrically on their patella, like underneath their patella or, or within the joint of their knee. And what's happened is, is basically when they've done the biopsy, they've seen that it's loaded with these oxalate crystals, but it, it literally feels like it's something is like being stabbed into the joint and tearing around. Okay. And so this is like a very real thing. Wherever it gets to, it really causes local dysfunction, very much local, um, and not only on the mechanical side. So it is actually capable of lodging itself into many of our biochemicals. So actually the enzymes which we are using to um, perform various types of functions in our body. I'll give you a couple of examples because these are quite interesting. So your listeners probably know about the mitochondria, the, the energy factory in the cell. And in the mitochondria, the way that we are taking food and actually converting that into usable energy in the form of ATP, um, we need to run it through several steps in, um, in a um, portion of the or, or a phase in the mitochondria, and it's called electron transport chain. And the electron transport chain basically involves multiple different complexes passing electrons and pumping out protons, okay? And what oxalate has been shown to do, if I remember correctly, it's actually been shown to um, inhibit or lodge, lodge into and inhibit every single complex of the mitochondria, but especially complex one. So when it basically comes into contact with the mitochondria, it can inhibit complex one. And what happens is when you get complex one inhibition, you can actually get excessive levels of what we call reactive oxygen species, or in other words, precursors to free radicals. Okay. So you get lots of this oxidative stress coming from this dysfunctional mitochondria, which can be caused by oxalate getting into the cells. And I noticed that's something that I I didn't explain. When oxalate is circulating, let's say oxalate is drawn towards some kind of a tissue. 
you have these, you have nano crystals, you have micro crystals, you have these macro crystals. So you have lots of different sizes, but with the, um, generally the way that they are getting into cells is via these things called transporters. But actually when you have a small enough oxalate, um, polycule, uh, sorry, particle, like a, a nano crystal, then what's actually happening is it can pierce directly through the membrane of the cell. It doesn't require any transport system. It just goes directly through there. And in doing so, what it's actually doing is it's puncturing holes into cells. <laughs> so you think wow. the cells that are making up the tissues or cells that are making up the thyroid gland or the various organs, these nanocrystals, if they're in high enough quantity, what's happening is, is they are puncturing into that cell and they are like decimating that cell's ability to make energy. If you can't make energy, you can't repair, you can't perform your function. And so, you know, you, you really become inert, so to speak. You can highly dysfunctional. Um, there are several of the other enzymes as well, though. Um, there are these enzymes, a class of enzymes called carboxylase enzymes, and these are actually dependent on a, a vitamin called biotin. And actually what oxalate has been found to do is in, is is insert itself into the place of biotin on these enzymes and actually render them dysfunctional. And many of them, again, are involved in energy metabolism. And we're talking about systemic energy metabolism, metabolism as well. So how we are taking energy or taking food and really making use of that. And so when you, uh, if you look at the kind of current literature on mitochondria, you see that mitochondrial dysfunction is very much implicated in just the wide variety, or I would say the the large majority of chronic illnesses that we see today on the rise. Um, and it, it seems to be related to this bioenergetic deficit. So the cells or the body is unable to effectively make enough energy to perform what it needs to do. And oxalate is really a, a key suspect here because of our modern environment, because of this toxic um, environment we're living in, I think that we are becoming very much more susceptible to to um, to absorbing more. And um, we have h- higher amounts in our diet as well, because you have to realize that oxalate-containing foods, let's look at rhubarb, for instance. There was a season for rhubarb. Okay, There's a season for rhubarb, which means it only grows at certain times of the year. And historically, people have eaten rhubarb and, funnily enough, become sick during that period. But then actually in the next six or seven or eight months, they would recover from that because they would naturally be eating a lower oxalate diet. But in our modern environments, we have 24-7 access to extraordinarily high levels of this um, plant toxin. And human beings, the the intake is gradually increasing. Um, and it, it it's it's very much an onslaught for the human body. And the human body is, only has a very kind of finite capacity to deal with that. But on a, you know, if you look at our evolutionary history, um, it would be very difficult to consume uh, an extremely high amount of oxalate on a daily basis, simply due to the fact that you would be eating what grew around you, and that, um, and that it would be hard to procure certain foods all year round. I think that, that makes sense. Yeah, I think that is such a profound point. 
I don't think we we stop enough to think about just how different our life is today with this 24 7 365 availability of pretty much anything we could ever want and desire from a food perspective that simply has not been the reality of our existence for 99.9 percent of it plus you know this idea of seasonal eating right everyone understands it you know everyone understands the idea of a a farm or an allotment and you you eat what you have when it's when it's grown and ready and when it's not there um you know without freezers and fridges and other methods of preserving food you just wouldn't be eating them animals on the other hand are, were an available source that we would have had throughout throughout the year i think it's such a profound point because if you were seasonally eating spinach uh, whilst it may have been abrasive uh, mechanically and chemically to our body we had a period of time to recover i think that is massive massive um one other point i wanted to make just on the toxicity part of it elliot if you could just elaborate so you've said that um whether it be leaky gut or just because it's soluble and otherwise you, you would allow a certain amount of um uh, oxalate through that would get past and attempted to be detoxified by the liver passed straight through passed into the kidney for filtering and then excreted but you said the kidney has a a capacity threshold it has a certain capacity to tolerate and pass oxalate uh, and beyond that capacity we didn't really talk about what happens there i'm assuming and this is for for you to correct me that imagine the kidney is a cup and you fill it up to the brim full of things it needs to process at the point in which it's so overflowing the rest of that stuff that would otherwise find its path to the kidney has to circulate and circulate in in the blood and then find a natural home because our body doesn't want this tox uh, toxic compound this molecule just free riding in our bloodstream it wants to put it away is is that is that right is it is i mean i don't know we're, we're talking hypothetical here is it the oxalate trying to find a home or is it our body saying hey we got all this stuff kind of flying around that can't get to the kidney right now i'm gonna have to deposit it somewhere until there's a point of low ox oxalate consumption so we can finally get rid of this is that roughly how the kind of system is working uh, i honestly don't know i don't know if it's been very well characterized um it may just be something that i personally have not come across i haven't i'll be honest I, I haven't dug so much into the research of the um of the pharmacokinetics of it but what i don't think it's that the body is 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 trying to store it really when when it's being absorbed from the gut that is going to prop up blood levels of oxalate and 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 after the liver you are going to get systemic circulation of oxalate as well so it's not going to go directly to the kidney but to, to, to a large extent, the kidney is going to have a lot of the burden of, of filtering out the, the oxalate, okay? So the kidney is, is going to have that burden. Um, but even just pumping up blood levels of oxalate, if you have any kind of um, injury, then oxalate is, is potentially going to be kind of uh, attracted toward that area. Okay, so any area that is um inflamed is kind of chronically inflamed acutely inflamed anything like that or where there's any kind of infection that is potentially going to be attracting oxalate now what i will say is that ordinarily with if you put it into context like in, in an evolutionary context then having a small amount of of 
like an increase in blood oxalate is not always going to be problematic per se, right? Because as I've said, the, the kidneys can deal with that. The liver can deal with that to some extent. And I think as long as the level is kept quite low, then that is not necessarily going to damage the kidneys. What I will say is that it's... Uh, I recall some research talking, uh, basically showing that one high oxalate meal. So if you have a meal, which is like a good couple hundred milligrams of oxalate, you are potentially going to cause kidney damage with that, like one onslaught. That's not, um, you know, that's not like permanent kidney damage, but it is, it's some very, temp- some, yeah, it, some, yeah, something exactly. local that needs repair. Yeah, basically, you, you you can induce like a temporary state of um, of kidney damage there. And so I think the kidneys, um, they will do their best. I think as as their ability to to excrete it becomes less, then you are going to be less able to um, to um, to get rid of it and more of it's going to be circulating and whatnot. But there's lots of other factors that come into play as well here as well. Um, because, you know, I was talking about gut bacteria and these kinds of things um, beforehand, but you see the body can actually make its own oxalate. Um, and this is not very well characterized. We're talking about a lot of the, the scientific literature is focused on kidney stones and that, I mean, if you speak to any conventional medical doctor, they will kind of tell you that, or most of them anyway, when you say oxalate, they will immediately think of kidney stones and they will think that that is the only problem with oxalates. Oxalates can only cause kidney stones. There's another thing, we can make our own oxalate and and that is being studied in people with certain genetic defects. Uh, of, of, of specific liver enzymes, which are involved in the metabolism of oxalate precursors. But what these people with this genetic defect actually um, experience is they make loads of oxalate in their liver. Um, and so this is a condition called primary hyperoxaluria. And so in these patients, this is really like where most of the data, if not all of the data comes from in terms of endogenous synthesis. Um, I will talk about endogenous synthesis in a minute, but with regard to the toxicity, um, the, the the health conditions that this has been implicated in are, are really far, like they are wide, far beyond um, kidney stones. Again, kidney stones is one of the only ones that has been studied, but we have, um, right, here are some very common conditions which have been shown to have elevated levels of oxalate. And and these have nothing to do with the kidney, right? So you have, um, we've spoken about vulvodynia. So this is when oxalate can become deposited in um, in the vagina. We've spoken about arthropathy, but there's also breast cancer. There is Crohn's disease. You have, um, what was it? Peptic ulcers can be caused by oxalate. You have um, autism. You see, this is a very interesting area of research, and this is something that Susan Owens focuses on a lot, is that actually um, in the large majority of autistic children that have been tested in terms of doing their organic acids and whatnot, and actually I, I think that when they've done the biopsy of brains um, of children with autism, these children have, you know, almost consistently have 
like problems dealing with oxalate. They have too many oxalates. So oxalate can get into the brain and it can cause, trigger all of these kinds of inflammatory reactions, not only in the brain, but it does occur in the brain as well. It activates something called the inflammasome. Okay. And the inflammasome is, is really, um, it's like, a, you can think of it like, um, it's like a, an off and on switch kind of thing. It's like a piece of machinery. It's made up of various different proteins. It's really complex. I don't really understand it very well. But in immunology, the inflammasome, when that is turned on, it is heightening the level of reactivity. It's You can think of it like a danger response, like a cell danger response kind of thing. And, um, and when the inflammasome is, is activated, when it's activated, then what, what's going to happen is, is that can predispose someone towards getting autoimmune conditions, towards developing chronic, um, just a wide variety of conditions, which are, I mean, there's Alzheimer's, there's dementia, there's Parkinson's, there's autism, there's all of these different things that are tied back to this inflammasome. And we see that oxalate in its ability to aggravate the immune cells, to aggravate the immune system, is turning on this inflammatory system. It's it's like the on switch, so to speak. Um, And so it is potentially implicated in, I mean, I've consulted with a lot of people from a wide variety of backgrounds and that actually many of them seem to have oxalate issues. So it seems to be a lot more common than what we've been led to believe. And unfortunately, a lot of the research, because research is, is fund driven, you know, scientists have to basically get funding. So they need to write research grant, uh, proposals and grants and things. Um, and essentially they need to study where the money's at. And unfortunately, there's not much money in looking at oxalate where where it can kind of where else it affects the human body. A lot of the research has been focused purely on on kidney stones and and it seems this notion seems to have crystallized in in science and it's only it's the people out in the field, so it's the average person it's the non scientists and the the people who aren't medical doctors. They're the people who who really make up the bulk of of the experimental population, um, because it turns out that many of the people who have established oxalate issues um, seem to also have many other health conditions uh, as as well. Like there's there's a wide variety of different health conditions that are associated with this, and so I suspect that actually this 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 poisonous um, kind of toxic element of the plant that when it accumulates in the body, uh, I think it could potentially contribute to, to, I don't think there's any limit on the, on the, the number of things that it could, it could affect. I, I, it's it's mind blowing, isn't it, Elliot? Because as you've rightly said, this is a, a forgotten part of science, really. Like you, you talk, you're talking about the literature in support of what, oxalate poisoning can do to the body and as you say it starts and stops with kidney research um and since then any funding has been incredibly sparse now if you think about the fact that oxalates are in small or large doses across most of the plant kingdom not all but most at varying degrees some more so than others um you think like what's the motivation to study this and and also, we we study more complex stuff now. This seems quite rudimentary, and it, it it sounds like a bit of quackery, right? And unfortunately, because there there isn't enough sufficient science in today's 
scientific practice, um, it's easy for this to be dismissed. And if you have symptoms that could be associated, you can sound like a hypochondriac. I mean, I'm part of the TLO community on Facebook, Trying Low Oxalates, which is uh, was founded by Susan Owens, the researcher you've spoken about. 20 odd thousand people, um, really helpful community, really interesting observations, studies being shared, anecdotes being offered, uh, lots of help. But you can't help if you just dipped in and you had no issues yourself. Think, God, there's a load of money people in here. <laughs> because you've got <laughs> you've got people with all sorts of nerve irritation, whether it's neuropathic, sensory, sensitization, sleep issues, cognition issues. You've got people with connective tissue issues, joint issues, GI problems. They've got you know, autoimmune conditions, they're, they're slow to recover, they've got cognition, memory, mood issues, uh, they've got skin rashes and peeling, they've got, you know, urinary issues, whether it be urgency, frequency, bladder pain, kidney pain, all sorts of stuff. And then you've got deficiencies. And it's just like, I've just basically described everything. <laughs> and And it's easy to look at a, a set of people saying, I've got this, this and this, and go, well, it's something else. It's something else that we've studied and we've understood. How could it be this thing that no one knows about, that there's no real science to support it in today's, you know, modern scientific endeavors? No one wants to talk about it. And unfortunately, it's easy to look at people that are suffering with these nebulous issues that have come, come and go and they can't really pin anything on. And they're not clinically diagnosed with the the common conditions that would be associated with the symptoms they're suffering, they're left out in the dark just to be called a hypochondriac. So I'm not trying to over-dramatize this, Elliot, but it, considering its wide-ranging impact at toxic levels in, in you know, chronic time periods, um, it feels like it's, it's, it's a difficult discussion to have because you're easily labeled as either a quack or a hypochondriac. I mean, what have, you got, what have you got to say in response to that? Do you feel I'm reading this right? Or do you think people are respecting the science and the science is there today to support some of these kind of issues that I've just described? Yeah, I, no, I, 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 I completely agree with you. I think, I think the way that you described it is, is spot on is, is, and it's, <laughs> it's really hard for someone to get their head around. And I want to say this as someone who I, I really do my best not to paint everyone with the same brush. So when you start looking at oxalates, you start looking at the effects and the symptoms that it can produce in people and the, the different health conditions that it's associated with. You, it's very hard to kind of, it's hard to believe, first of all, because it makes you wonder how, one thing, like how one thing which is found in so many foods, which are so common, could 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 cause such a vast array of different kind of seemingly unconnected maladies, like symptoms and, and conditions. It, so that's, first of all, hard to get your head around until you understand how it works, right? But then it's also easy to paint everything with the oxalate brush. So, I, mm -hmm. you know, people know 
kind of know me as the oxalate guy or one of the oxalate guys at least um i, I want to say that i i really don't think that it's the driving factor behind everyone's condition but what i will say is that oftentimes oftentimes people can be surprised to 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 learn they may have done certain tests they may have thought that they had not an issue with this but then actually when they take out oxalates from their diet they notice miraculous changes and then they start experiencing things um like the excretion of oxalates which is kind of a, a process that we'll probably talk about shortly we but don't. um but yeah so so it's it it tends to be more common than than you would think but then at the same time um it, there's almost no research on it it's 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 bizarre because i think this is one of the reasons why many healthcare professionals um and even research scientists don't give this idea any credit and probably why it's not very well known is because, you know, as we were talking about before, the research is condensed and kind of um, localized into kidney stones or into the genetic conditions with oxalates. Other than that, then there's been practically zero research into anything else. It's all to do with the kidneys or to do with genetics. And so unfortunately, there's not much known. And so a lot of it is anecdotal. A lot of it is based on experimental testing, so in terms of sy symptoms and in terms of um, certain urinary or biochemistry tests that uh, private labs do. But really, um, we are kind of in the dark with this one. And I think um, it's been quite a large experiment for the past couple of decades. So um, really, the, as you said, the TLO community uh, fostered by... Um, by Susan Owens, I think she's been looking into this for near enough two decades now. And in those two decades, there've been, what, maybe 25, 30,000 people who have tried this low oxalate diet. They've, they've, they've come in with this bizarre range of symptoms, which don't really make sense. They don't fit into any diagnostic label or under any diagnostic category, but then they have, 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 you know, attempted to go on this low oxalate diet and have actually seen massive improvements. And these are people from all walks of life. And so what it really seems like is that, um, I don't know if the research community will catch up anytime soon. I really don't know. And I'm personally not waiting for that. Um, I think that oftentimes if there's, if there's enough anecdotes, then it, then it simply means that the science has not, um, is, is yet to catch up. Right. So, so as Sean Baker would say, the anecdote of, um, uh, what, what is it? Uh, Oh, I forgot. I know he says something like the anecdote of 10,000 people is data. Right? Yeah, 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 basically. Uh, there was a particular way of phrasing it, but I can't remember. But yeah, when you've got thousands and thousands of people reporting that something is working um, and no one, there's no scientific evidence or so no, no scientific studies to prove why it's working, um, then yeah, then to some extent there is guesswork. But it's not even like it's, it's not even... It's not even like that because there is science. The problem is the science hasn't been, um, 
it's 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 like uh, many different threads of the oxalate research, which are relatively unknown. So you'll have some research scientists looking at the effects of oxalate in, in specific cell cultures, and then others in the effects of, of what happens in this genetic condition. And so a lot of what we know is coming from like these people who are making too much oxalate themselves in their liver. But then we know that there's also thousands of other people who have very similar symptoms, but don't have the genetic condition. Mm. And the common denominator is that they ate a really high oxalate diet. We know that oxalate accumulates in the body and we know the effect it can have on the people with kidney stones, how it wrecks their metabolism. At the same time, we know how it's affecting these people with this genetic condition. And if we're seeing similar symptoms, similar signs, similar biochemical patterns in people who don't have the genetics, but they just go on a binge of spinach smoothies, then we can hypothesize that actually oxalate, a high oxalate diet is very likely like sticking around in these people's bodies and wreaking havoc. Mm. It's, it's easy to get <laughs> to put this in the category of people that try or move towards a vegan diet and they talk about hey you've just got to go through the healing process and you know it's detoxifying and you know you can it's, it's bad before it's good and you see people deteriorating before your very eyes yet they're wedded to the commitment of the diet and that they're going through a process so on that uh, i think it's really important we talk about oxalate dumping right so that's part one done guys hopefully you found it insightful and interesting this conversation carries on seamlessly into the discussion of poisoning and dumping and how to manage that process as well as my own personal experience with oxalate dumping in episode 92. To get listening to episode 92, just get straight into your podcast platform, subscribe. Maybe it's there already, depending on when you're listening to this. It will release two days after episode 91. So until then, I'll let you crack on with the rest of your day and be your best. If you enjoy this show, please leave us a five-star review on iTunes. It really helps. And of course, recommend us to any friends or family who you think might also enjoy the show. Thanks for listening. This is Adapt Nation. <laughs>